0: Would you turn to 2 Samuel, please, 21. The end of life provides a time to reflect on an entire life. What's done has been done, and reflection is all that remains. What accounts for my life? What is the explanation of my life? That's what happens as we come to the end of 2 Samuel. And as we come to the end of, near end of great King David's life, we have a time for reflection. Now, technically, Only the book of Samuel is ending. King David's life is not coming to an end. But as David's life comes to a conclusion, it's a time for reflection. David himself is asking, what explains my life as a king? What characterizes my life as my story comes to an end? And as we look back at the life of a great king like David, David's life story confronts us with similar questions. What will be said of you at the end of your life? Well, for the first time since 2 Samuel 8, we have a measure of peace in the old city of Jerusalem. God's king, David, is back in God's city, ruling over God's reunited people in God's presence. And now when we come to Two Samuel 21 to 24, we have what's known as an epilogue. The epilogue of chapters 21 to 24, not only ends 2 Samuel, but 1 Samuel 2. Friends, just remember that 1 and 2 Samuel are are one book in two parts. So now comes a time for reflection. Now, this section, while it's out of chronological order with the rest of the book, the author here, nevertheless, has artfully arranged these final four chapters of Samuel so that chapters 21 and 24 frame the inner hymns of 22 and 23. So two weeks ago, we highlighted that. When we were here at the beginning, the end of second Samuel, we're reminding ourselves of it again. Why? Because as we learned in our summer, Wednesday night Bible study, that every text has a structure. And if you find the structure of the text, you can find the author's emphasis of the text. So what's the structure of these last four chapters? Well, the two outer chapters of narrative, 21 and 24, form a top and a tail Of the two inner chapters of poems, of music of 22 and 23. So the outer chapters 21 and 24 function like bookends that hold the inner music together of chapters 22 and 23. And the point is then that these two inner chapters of of music are like the main theme song that plays at the very end of a blockbuster movie as the credits scroll, and you hear the final theme song from the movie that captures all of the other cool theme music you heard from the action movie that you just watched. That's what's happening as the book ends. So listen to these chapters and these songs, understand these final four chapters, and you're going to hear all the important melodic themes, the important music that's come before So from these four chapters, we have a rich review of what has come and an even richer preview of a greater king who's about to come. So here is what David sees in these chapters. As the story of Samuel comes to an end, King David, God's anointed Messiah king, knows that God's steadfast love is going to outlast his own life until a son of David is going to sit on his throne forever and so david will say at the end of second samuel 22 great salvation he will bring to his king that's our theme for this morning great salvation god brings to his king forever and we'll look at that theme of great salvation to his king in two parts the great salvation of god's conquering king that's the end of chapter 21 The great salvation of God's conquering king. And then chapter 22 is the great salvation that God brings to his king. God's rescued king. God's conquering king, chapter 21. God's rescued king, chapter 22. Well, let's begin by finishing chapter 21. Two weeks ago, one of the things we noticed in 2 Samuel 21 is that God's people needed somebody who can make an atonement for their sin. That was verses 1 to 14. This morning, we're seeing that God's people throughout their history need a king who can conquer their enemies. That's what we're about to read in verses 15 to 22. And what we remember, placed here at the end of the story of Samuel, we're about to see what always happened to David's enemies throughout his entire reign. What always happened to David's enemies when he met them. Well, let's read verses 15 to 22. Behold the great salvation of God's conquering king. Second Samuel 21, starting in verse 15. Here is what Holy Scripture says. There was war again between the Philistines and Israel. And David went down together with his servants and they fought against the Philistines. And David grew weary. And Ishbi Benob, one of the descendants of the giants whose spear weighed 300 shekels of bronze or about seven pounds and was armed with a new sword, he thought to kill David. But Abishai, the son of Zariah, came to his aid and attacked the Philistine and killed him. Then David's men swore to him, you shall no longer go out with us to battle, lest you quench the lamp of Israel. And after this, there was again war with the Philistines at Gob. Then Sebekai, the Hushatite, struck down Saph, who was one of the descendants of the giants. And there was war again with the Philistines at Gob. And Elhanan, the son of Jaari, Oregim, the Bethlehemite, struck down Goliath, the Gittite, the shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. And there was again war at Gath, hometown of Goliath, where there was a man of great stature, who had six fingers on each hand, six toes on each foot, 24 in number. And he also was descended from the giants. And when he taunted Israel, Jonathan, the son of Shimei, David's brother, struck him down. These four were descended from the giants in Gath, and they all fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. This is the word of the Lord. Now, many people are familiar with the true tale of David fighting Goliath, a Philistine warrior. We might think that kind of fierce battle that David had against overwhelming odds was his own miracle on ice, a one-off event that never happened again, as spectacular as it may be. But this section of verses shows us that Goliath was not the only Philistine whom David faced throughout his reign. Look again at verse 22 It reveals four other giants of unusual strength and stature besides Goliath. And each giant not only represents an individual foe, but represents a nationwide battle with Israel's worst enemies, the Philistines. Israel versus the Philistines was a deadly rival like no other, like the Yankees and the Red Sox, like Michigan and Ohio State or the Lakers and the Celtics, except it was worth because death was the outcome, not a trophy and not defeat. The opening line of verse 18 and the repeated refrain shows us that fierce opposition characterized David's reign as a king. Did you hear the beginning of verse 18? And after this, there was war. And three other times, after this, there was war. After this, there was war. After this, there was war. war. Far from a life of luxury then, these verses at the end of Samuel show us that David's life as a king was characterized by one war after another. next. There was war again with the Philistines. His entire reign was characterized by opposition from the worst of his enemies, the fiercest of his foes, described here repeatedly, those of superior strength and of superior stature. The descriptions of these four giants... Uh, seemingly superhuman in strength, almost demonic in quality. I mean, one of them has six fingers and six toes, which highlights this giant warrior status of an unusual opponent. Another one is described as wielding a bronze spear weighing seven pounds. Now, to put that in perspective, uh, an Olympic javelin that the men throw is 1.8 pounds. So here's a warrior carrying something four times heavier than a javelin into battle. A hunting rifle weighs about six to eight pounds. That's the weight of this bronze spear that Ishbi Binob throws when he goes into battle. And he also carries a new sword. So here's this bronze spear and a new double-fisted broadsword. sword are heavy weaponry for one soldier to carry into battle. Maybe you go into battle with one. Maybe you're an expert in one. But you don't go into two. You're probably not skilled enough and the weight of them slows you down. But not for Ishbi benob He carries this bronze spear and double-fisted sword with ease like you and I would walk onto a baseball field with a baseball bat and a glove hanging off the end. These are the kind of fierce foes, enemies that David has throughout his reign. He faces one life-threatening Goliath after another. And as a king... It means the lives of his beloved citizens under his reign, their lives were in constant danger, and that responsibility was on David. He himself is always facing the best of the best. Or maybe we should say David was always facing the worst of the worst. Constant opposition from the worst kinds of enemies of superior strength. No wonder at the end of verse 15, we are told, and David grew weary. How many times in this series have we quoted those lines from Shakespeare's Henry IV as Henry IV can't sleep at night and he laments, uneasy lies the head that wears the crown. And David was weary. And yet while David faced the battles from his most odious opponents, what we're told is he conquered every one of them in the strength of the Lord. So chapter 21 ends, and they fell By the hands of David and by the hands of his servants, the enemies of God. Then we see throughout David's life ran into the buzzsaw of God's conquering king. David was, after all, the lamp of Israel. What does that mean? David's men, Abishai calls him in verse 17. You are the lamp of Israel. It's a significant title for how David is functioning. Would you would you look at verse 17? Because I want us to see before we get to that, I want us to see something else. I want us to notice from verse 17 and throughout this that David doesn't fight alone. Abishai comes to his aid. And throughout this, one mighty man after another comes to David's aid. Mighty men come to his aid. Names now of eternal renown who enlisted in the service of the king. Beloved, just know that no one has ever forgotten who serves God's king. No one, not even a cup of cold water is forgotten for those who serve Christ the king. Little boys later would wish themselves to be like Abishai and Sibekai and Elhanan and Jonathan. Names hard to pronounce for us, but they were even harder to take down in battle. Now think for a moment, what do the presence of these kinds of mighty men reveal at a rudimentary level? Can I say this? They reveal the need for these kinds of men in life. Indeed, those kinds of men were needed for the well-being of the nation of Israel. Without them, the point is they don't succeed. And David doesn't succeed. The present Here's a point of application in passing. The presence of these men then reveal the need for men today. In an attempt to correct the abuses of men in the past... Our culture now is in the middle of a moment of overcorrecting as a whole so that Western society now is starting to view men as the heart of society's evil, that being born a man automatically makes you a problem. Susanna Walters wrote an article in the Washington Post a few years ago called Why Can't We Hate Men? And it wasn't satire. She wrote it from as a serious piece as the head of gender and sexuality studies at Northeastern University. And just after her, Maureen Dowd, a Pulitzer Prize winning columnist, wrote a nearly 400 page book called Are Men Necessary? There are other commonplace examples in our world today. And whatever kind of wrongs those works attempt to correct, those kinds of mindsets will end up making our world and our families and our churches worse in the long run. My wife alerted me to a book by Nancy Pearcey. She's referred to as Americans, America's preeminent Protestant female intellectual. And just two months ago in June, she published a book where she explores this and a book she called The Toxic War on Masculinity. And Pearcey's research shows that the social sciences actually tell a very different story from the common cultural narrative about men, especially about men who are evangelical Christian. For example, she shows one peer-reviewed study after another that finds that family men who attend church regularly test better and as the most loving husbands and most engaged fathers, they have the lowest rate of divorce. And here's the real stunner that she writes in light of popular narrative. They have the lowest rate of domestic violence of any group in America. Now, we certainly don't need toxic men. But we do need masculine men who neither abuse nor abdicate their God-given role as loving heads of their home, protectors of the weak, diligent providers, and those who run into the battle first and not away from it. Those kinds of men ought to be honored and not shamed. The CDC recently released suicide record suicide numbers among Americans again, and the highest rates are for men. Males make up, according to the survey, only about 50% of the population while accounting for 80% of suicides. And and 78% of those suicides of the 80 are white American males. Now, there's a complexity, to be sure, behind those causes. But when society starts to shame any gender or any ethnicity or any nationality, it will take a toll, and the suicide rates might be a small window in what's happening in America. It might be. When I first entered pastoral ministry two decades ago, I was constantly emphasizing that women are made in the image of God for the way women have been demeaned and devalued. It's still a right emphasis, particularly among certain independent fundamental strands of professing Christianity. But I think among us in our current moment of overcorrection, the opposite might need to be said again. God created female and male in his image. That we need women and we need men. God created both and we need to act like men and women in accord with how a loving, wise creator made women as women and men as men. We need both to reflect the many splendor glory of God. So this passage in passing, I'm just saying it shows you that without these kinds of valiant men. Masculine men and courageous men who laid down their lives for a cause greater than themselves. The king wouldn't have survived and neither was Israel. And what Israel needed then, we need godly men today. And praise God for godly men. But more than that and closer to the point. The presence of Dade's mighty men shows us that he is not. David is not a self-made, self-sufficient, intrinsically self-trained, powerful MMA warrior. He gets weary. He's a dependent king. He needs other people. And so do you. And so do I. Our world is a world in which we are never been more connected by technology and never lonelier than we are now. Screens will never replace relationships which is one big reason God gave us the local church. If King David did not fight alone and he needed others to survive, how much more do we? God never meant for us to face tough time alone. That's why he gave us the body. David had mighty men who came to his aid. He was a dependent conquering king. But this all started... When I said, David is called the lamp of Israel by Abishai at the end of verse 17. Did you see that, David? You can't go out to battle anymore because you might quench the lamp of Israel. You are the lamp of Israel. Well, where does that phrase come from? That phrase is first used as the story of Samuel opens. The book opens in a time of darkness. It's still roughly the time of judges when everybody's doing what's right in his own eyes. It's a dark time. It's such a dark time that we read of an old judge named Eli who's almost blind. And Eli's near blindness, literal blindness, is a symbol that God's people are almost in complete moral blindness too. It was almost completely dark. But then we hear in First Samuel 3, verse 3, at that time Eli, whose eyesight had begun to dim so that he could not see. However, at that time, the lamp of God had not yet gone out. And there was Samuel in God's temple. You see what's happening? The lamp of God is a phrase referring to God's presence, to his voice among his people. But just as the lamp of God was about to go out, God provided Samuel. Ah, But Samuel was not that lamp of Israel. But like John the Baptist who would come centuries later, Samuel would bear witness to that light. But he was not that light. Samuel was the kingmaker who anointed David as king of Israel. And in doing so, Samuel lit the lamp of Israel in the darkness. David is the lamp in the darkness. Thus, David is more than a king, and his people know it. His men know it. David, then, is the evidence of God's gracious promises that God would provide a king, that he'd give a light in the darkness. David is God's messianic lamp who shines brightly in the darkness, and the darkness will not overcome him. He conquers all of his enemies as the light. Thus, David's men know at some level that David is occupying a significant role in the history of redemption. He's hailed as no other person in the Old Testament. David is the lamp of Israel. He's the light of Israel. And if you die, David, God's light, God's promises go out. Now, the final context, you know, the final context of every passage in the Bible is the entire Bible. So you tell me, where does this description go of King David, who's called the lamp of Israel in the dark? Do you see that man on the streets of Jerusalem who stood up in the middle of a crowded feast? And among the Jews, he stood up and said, and the feast of lights, he said, I am the light of the world. The light of Israel that David was in small Jesus wasn't full. Jesus is the light shining in the darkness, and the darkness will not overcome it. And unless you come to Christ the light, you will always remain in darkness. You will always remain in your sin. Great salvation God gives to his dependent, conquering king. Thus, as chapter one of this final epilogue comes to a close, we see that David's victories come from a source other than himself. He's not invincible. He's dependent on fellow warriors. And more to the point, David is completely dependent on God's providential protection. They show us how dependent he is on his men and ultimately on God himself for every victory in his life. Which means as you come to the end of Samuel in the story, here's the point you're to see. God is the hero of David's life. God is the hero of Israel's life. God not only lit the lamp of Israel, he also preserved him. Great salvation he has brought to his conquering king. That's the end of chapter one. Great salvation to God's conquering king. Now let's move secondly to chapter 22. Great salvation of God's rescued king. God's rescued king. Now what we just saw at the end of chapter 21. David conquering his enemies. David now sings a song about how he conquered his enemies. Now before we look at the chapter specifically. I want us to think of the entire passage looking at its main themes, its main emphasis. Now, hold on. Don't get lost. Love God with your mind. We're going to see the whole big picture before we look at the middle. Second Samuel 22. You can see if you have your Bible open, you scan down. It runs over the next page in my Bible and onto a third page. It's a dazzling Grand Canyon expanse of praise. It's 51 verses. Grand Canyon like praise. And David wants it to be crystal clear that the only explanation for his life is God. That God is the source of everything in my life from my trials to my triumphs. God is behind it all. In fact, David tells us in verse one why he wrote this song. Look at Second Samuel 22, verse one. And David spoke to the Lord the words of this song on the day when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. You see, David wants us to know that this is all about the great salvation that God has brought to his king. He rescued me from all my enemies, whether it was the Philistines in chapter 21 or Saul himself. So David is engaging. He's telling us, he's speaking of God's universal, divine sovereignty. And David's giving Wholehearted praise to God for it. That's the dominant theme of the chapter. God's universal divine sovereignty over everything in David's life and Israel's kingdom. And in David's song of praise, he's going to reach way back and borrow words from songs from Exodus and the law of Moses. He even goes back and he borrows the music, the lyrics from from Baron Hannah, from her prophetic song of praise in first Samuel two. And then David's song reaches all the way forward to the New Testament, to the coming of Jesus Christ, the son of David, because one day Mary, the mother of Jesus, she picks up the praise song of Hannah in 1 Samuel 2, and she picks up the praise song of David in 2 Samuel 22, and Mary adds a final stanza to this redemptive song of praise. And in Luke 1. Mary sings that that babe in her womb is the fulfillment of the promise that God made to Abraham and his offspring to give them a king forever. Luke one. That's what David is celebrating. And in saving David from his enemies, David knows in this chapter that God is about to save the world. The song begins in verse one. God, David speaking of God's great deliverance. But now, would you look at the very end of 2 Samuel 22? Because how this chapter opens is how it closes. Look down at verse 51. Listen as David's song ends. Great salvation he brings to his king. And he shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. Now, we're going to park there for the next few minutes and we're going to look at that. The song begins and ends the same way. It's all about the great salvation God gives to his king from all his enemies. But David knows, as the song ends, that he's not the final king that God is bringing salvation to. Where do we see that? Well, in part, you'd have to remember back in 2 Samuel 7, where God promised that he would deal with all mankind through David's dynasty. And 2 Samuel 7, God told David that he was going to save the nations of the world through one of David's descendants. And now as Samuel ends, David celebrates that he knows this will happen. He says God is going to show his steadfast love to someone other than me. Well, look at 51. He shows his steadfast love to whom? To his anointed. That word anointed is the word Messiah, or it comes into the New Testament as the word Christ. Now, Hannah uses that same word anointed at the end of her praise song in 1 Samuel 2. And 1 Samuel 2.10, while she's still in the dark, Hannah sings, God will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed one forever. David borrows, he steals that line from her. It's okay, he's supposed to. And before anyone else knew, Before any king was remotely on the horizon, the Holy Spirit revealed to this woman who had been suffering that even though it was dark, even though there was no king in Israel, that one day a king, an anointed Messiah would come and Hannah saw it before anybody else did. Hannah proclaimed the remarkable coming of a Messiah king. And now as the story of Samuel ends, it's obvious that David is the anointed king of whom Hannah sang. What she foresaw in the darkness, a coming anointed Messiah king would come, now has come to pass in David's rule and his reign. What a glorious day. Now, how do we know that for sure? Well, as the, as Samuel ends, David sings and he's using Hannah's words. He praises God using Hannah's words for the great salvation he's brought to his anointed. And the next line, his anointed to David, David. So, beside Second Samuel twenty-two fifty-one, you should write First Samuel two ten, because Second Samuel 22, 51 and First Samuel two ten they form another top and tail that link the entire book together. Draw a line for First Samuel two, and it goes all the way over to Second Samuel twenty-two. It's linking the whole book together, telling you what the entire book is about. It's a story that begins in the darkness with the cries of a barren woman named Hannah. And it ends in the light with the cries of David, God's anointed king, crying out that God has indeed given salvation to his king. What Hannah foresaw has come to pass in David. But only in part. Because David is looking beyond himself. David knows he's not the final king that Hannah looked for. How do we know? Well, look again at 2 Samuel twenty-two fifty-one. 51. He shows steadfast love not only to his anointed, to his Messiah, David, but also to whom? To David and his offspring. Forever. You see, David knows the promises for a king are not being fulfilled to him, but through him. In a messianic king. A son of his yet to come. And in the flow of the Bible, beloved, who is David's offspring to come? It's Jesus Christ, David's son, yet David's Lord. It was all foreseen by David. Joyce Baldwin captures the Christ focus climactic point of verse 51 like this. With a last note of his song, David knows that he will not live forever, but he knows that God's promise would pass on to his descendant to a better offspring which points to the coming of Christ. So that means in 2nd Samuel 22 David writes a song that acts like a waterfall just like 2nd Samuel 7 and second Samuel 22, David is gathering. He's capturing all the mighty currents of God's promises for a king that came before. And then he's sending out those promises in an invincible torrent of grace. until they swirl around the foot of the manger. They surge onward to the cross of Christ and outward from the empty tomb until they gather at the throne of the son of David beyond the crystal sea where Christ and his offspring are forever. You see, 2 Samuel 22 is a song about Jesus, the son of David. And it's not only a song about Jesus, it's a song from Jesus's own lips. That's not an exaggeration. Peter, in Acts, calls David a prophet. So in 2 Samuel 22, what we're hearing is David's voice, but it's actually David's prophetic voice speaking for Christ. Because if you listen carefully to the experiences and the very words of second Samuel 22, you will hear the voice of Jesus. The experiences of David provide a prophetic witness and preview to what Jesus himself would happen in his life. Paul says so. He says so in Romans 15, a passage we looked at this morning. Look at 2250. Just go up one verse. Second Samuel 2250. David sings this for this is. I will praise you O Lord among the nations for your deliverance from the enemies I will praise you O Lord not just among Jerusalem but I will praise you among the nations and sing praises to your name now when Paul hears that in Romans 15:9 Paul says that what King David sang in part as he rejoiced over the salvation God gave him was actually the voice of Christ as Christ would stand atop the enemies of sin and death from the empty tomb and Christ would sing praises over the redeemed people of every tribe and nation. Christ is the king God delivered from the great enemy of death and in Romans 15:9 Paul puts the words of 2nd Samuel 22:50 in the mouth of Christ. So it's Christ who stands and he sings among the Jews and the Gentiles, the nations of the world. I will praise you among the nations. This is the very word of Christ. The final analysis, the voice of David is actually the voice of Jesus, the son of David. Now, no wonder it takes David 51 verses to get all of this in. It's a grand canyon of redemptive revelation of God's promises to save people from their sin through a coming king. Go on, Brother David. Do 51 more verses. Tell us the old, old story. That's what he's doing. Well, great salvation he brings to his king and God shows steadfast love to his anointed and to David and his offspring. What I mean is to Christ and his people forever. This is our story through Jesus, our king. Well, that's the big flyover. Now, let's look at the big stanzas of this hymn. We move now from God's that God's conquering king now to God's rescuing king to whom he's given salvation. Now, three times. Now, you remember in our summer Bible study that a key that unlocks every structure of uh, of the Bible is repetition. And in this hymn, David repeats a phrase three times. What is it? Rock? Rock? Refuge and shield. And those three repetitions, those three references to God as rock, shield and refuge provide us a rough structure. Let me show you. Look at verses two and three. Do You see that? David refers to God as his rock, his refuge and his shield. So these verses provide the opening notes of introduction that take us from the introduction and into the first stanza. Introduction, verses 2 and 4. Stanza 1, verse 5 through verse 30. But the next time we see that phrase, that refrain, rock, refuge, and shield, is down in verses 31 and 32. Look there. David sings it again. This God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. For who is God but the Lord? And who is a rock except our God? So for the second time, David praises God in this refrain as a rock, refuge, and shield. And then for a final time in verse forty seven, David does it for a last time. Verse forty seven The Lord lives, and blessed be my rock, and exalted be the rock of my salvation. Only this time when David speaks, he's not starting a new stanza, but he's he's introducing a concluding cadenza of praise, verses fifty seven to fifty one. So that threefold refrain provides us the general structure of an introduction, stanza 1, 5 to 30, stanza 2, 31 to 46, and then a concluding cadenza and 47 and on. Now, we're not going to look at all of this in detail, but I do want us to listen to each section and the weight of God's glory, and hopefully it will land on us as David intends for it to do. First, the Introduction. God rescues his king, and David wants us to know in his final song, I want you to know who the hero of my life is. So David explodes into praise. Would you read it with me, starting in verse 2? David said, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and refuge, my savior, You save me from violence. I will call upon the Lord who's worthy to be praised. And I am saved from my enemies. This is the word of the Lord. Now, like many words in this song, David doesn't invent them, but he adapts them from an earlier praise song. As Moses, the great prophet, prepared to die and send God's people into the promised land, he composed a song. And that song began with these words in Deuteronomy 32. I will ascribe greatness to God. He is a rock and his way is perfect. The eternal rock that grounded Moses and God's people back then was still grounding David and God's people now. And then David launches into eight or nine in the original language, overlapping images, repeating two of them twice. The metaphors for God come at us in quick succession, one after the other. God is too marvelous for one image to capture his greatness. His glory outruns our ability to describe him. He's a rock. Uh, He's a fortress. He's a deliverer. He's a refuge. He's a shield. Did I tell you he was a rock? Did I tell you he was the pointed whore of an ox? Did I forget to say that he's a refuge? He's a stronghold. And on top of it all, I just want to tell you that he's my savior. All of these metaphors, they invite our imagination. How is God like a rock? How is God like a shield? How is he like the horn of a wild ox and so on? Spend this Sunday afternoon meditating on those metaphors or take one every day this week and think, how is God like this? David is inviting us with these rich images to explore the greatness of God. Now, we might say once we figure out all the nuances that all these images still share ideas in common, all of these images share this picture of God as a powerful protector they show us protection and security of solid safety and sure salvation david wants us to see that as you look back over the story of his life and israel's history he wants you to see the person who was behind it all was god the rock god the refuge he was the one constant reminder the one sure foundation the only savior the only true savior and all of these metaphorical images of god are deeply personal for King David. He precedes each of them with personal pronouns, not because he had writer's block and he had a word count he was trying to fill up to turn into his teacher. You have to write a hundred words. My, 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 I have a hundred words. No, no, no. This is deeply personal for David. It's my rock, my fortress, my deliverer, my refuge, my shield, my horn, my stronghold, and most of all, my savior. And we're supposed to go, my, 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 Martin Luther said that the specialness of Protestant Christianity is found in its personal pronouns. This is my rock and my shield and my Savior. You see, friends, David found out what any of you can find out at any moment, that God is not only powerful, but He's personal. What deeply personal, spectacular words are used to describe God, to spotlight Him as the glory of David's life. It's my Savior, friend. David is asking you as the king, is this wonderful God your Savior? Long before Thomas Chisholm wrote the hymn, Great is Thy Faithfulness, and that line, All I have needed, God has provided, King David was singing that line long before Thomas Chisholm came on the scene, because in 2 Samuel 22, David is saying, All I have needed, his hand has provided. God is everything to me, David. I'm a king. I don't need much. I don't need anything. But I'm telling you, one thing I need, God is everything to me. He is all that I need at the end of my life. And listen, if a king like David needed a refuge and a savior, what about you? Now, come on, don't make fun of Christians. Everybody has a refuge. We all have something or someone that functions as a rock and a savior in our life. Who is that for you? What is it for you? David's showing you the heart of all human beings. We all look for a rock. We all look for a refuge. We all want a savior. Who is yours? What is yours? Sometimes respect can be our refuge. That was Joab's idol we saw. Being respected as a leader was what gave Joab refuge and value. Respect was his savior. Well, how would you know if respect is your refuge? Well, if people can quickly lose your respect... It's probably your refuge because that's how you view people in respect. And if you get angry or sad, if people don't respect you, respect is your refuge. And your anger is sad because somebody's messing with your refuge. But work can be a refuge. You can overwork to prove yourself or you stay at work longer because you get more affirmation at work than you do at home and work is your refuge. And you know that because you get very angry or very sad when people don't recognize how hard you work or your expertise. What's happening? Someone is messing with your refuge and you don't feel valued anymore. Sex and porn is a refuge. It's a savior. If I could go to bed with that person, someone like that, I'd feel good about myself. If I could get them in bed, I'd feel powerful. I'd feel important. You see, Christian or not, all of us have some refuge. All of us have some rock. All of us have some savior that we praise like David. And your emotions and our reactions, our time shows you who your refuge is. But here a king is telling you, a king is telling you who had more money than any of us, more opportunity. Than, a king is telling you there's only one true rock. There's only one lasting refuge. There's only one true savior. And it's God. A quote often attributed to the, to the British thinker G.K. Chesterton captures it like this, that the man on the way to the brothel is actually looking for God. You can apply that to any area of life. You could say the woman who's overworking is actually looking for God. The man craving respect is actually hungering for God. The teenager looking for a hookup is actually looking for God. Do you see? But only God can be that kind of refuge. Only he's the rock that can hold the weight of all of our desires and expectations. There's no savior refuge like him. David's telling you that. Are you humble enough to see it? Will you admit it? Augustine said it, the, South, the, 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 the African bishop told us in his own confessions of his life story that, God, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. And David the king is telling you through the words of Jesus, come unto me all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. There is no rest or refuge like my God. Do you know him? Only God is that kind of refuge. Well, after David introduces us to the personal hero of the story, now David's going to launch into his first stanza. And it goes from verse 50 to verse 30. And David's going to celebrate how God rescued him. Would you read it with me? Listen to how God supernaturally rescued his king. Verse 5, the king says, For the waves of death encompassed me. The torrents of destruction assailed me. The cords of Sheol, the grave entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. And in my distress, I called upon the Lord to my God. I called. From his temple, he heard my cry and my cry came to his ears. You want to know what happened, Israel? Then the earth reeled and rocked. The foundations of the heavens trembled and quaked because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils, devouring fire from his mouth, glowing coals flame before him. He bowed the heavens and he came down. Thick darkness went under his feet. He rode on a cherub and he flew. He was seen riding on the wings of the wind. He made darkness around him his canopy. Thick clouds, a gather of water. Out of the brightness before him, coals of fire flamed forth. The Lord thundered from heaven and the Most High uttered his voice. And with his voice, he sent out arrows and scattered them, lightning and routed them. Then the channels of the sea of the deep were seen. The foundations of the world were laid bare. They were opened up. And at the rebuke of the Lord, at his voice, the blast of the breath of his nostrils. And here's what happened. He sent from on high and he took me. He drew me out of many waters. He rescued me from my strong enemy, from those who hated me, from those who were too mighty for me. And that's the testimony of every person who's ever been saved from his sin. They confronted me in the day of my calamity. But thanks be to God, the Lord was my support. And he brought me out into a broad place and he rescued me. And you want to know why he rescued me? The one who committed murder and committed adultery. You want to know why he rescued me? Because for reasons only known to him, he delighted in me. That's amazing, offensive grace. We'll pick it up in a moment, but just as chapter one showed you that God's king always faced opposition, this chapter is showing you that David, as God's king, was often in distress. In our modern terms, we'd say he's a melancholy king, he battled with depression, he was a man of constant sorrow. And verses 5 to 6 describes not a one-off, but a regular occurrence of his life as king. The possibility of violent death was always something that was a reality for him. I don't think any of us, now maybe some of you have been through combat. Praise the Lord for you, and you have real PTSD from that kind of trauma. I think few of us in here, maybe none, endured the psychological toil that must have been on David every day in and out of battle. He once confided in Jonathan, his best friend, Jonathan, every day my life is just a step away from death. It felt like David to him, like he was drowning in torrents of water about to go over his head. He describes his life as being bound and ensnared like a trapped hunted animal waiting for a knife to go across its throat. He feels like the grave was opened before him and vines had grown out of the dark soil of the grave and wrapped themselves around his body and were now pulling him down into the grave into death. God's king is overwhelmed. He's terrified. He's often frightened as Saul hunted him down and yet another giant stepped forward and another giant stepped forward to challenge him. Behold the terror, the desperation, the fear of God's king. Behold, the terrible response of God for his king. The end of verse eight, did you see it? It tells us God was angry. God's anger is not a reason to disbelieve in God. It's a reason to believe in God. How do you respond when somebody you love is hurt, threatened or slandered? Isn't righteous anger a form of the purest love? I recall playing on the streets in junior high and over my shoulder, This way, over my shoulder. I still see it in my mind. Neighborhood bullies were tossing around a five-year-old boy like he was a tennis ball. When all of a sudden, the little dad's boy threw open the wooden screen door on this red brick house and he yelled with a face redder than the bricks, why are you messing with my boy? Are you messing with my boy? And just like in a movie, they slowly backed up and they turned and they ran. That was the loving anger of a dad for his son and god is angry about how his king is being treated god is not angry at david he's angry for david this is his angry loving response as he hears the distressed cry of his king come into his temple and god hears him he hears him And then it describes what happens next. It describes how God came down to rescue his king. It pictures God like he rips open the curtains of heaven and he starts to come down. This is not quite it. It's kind of silly, but here's an image. High school football season is starting and often the home football team runs through some banner. And if they don't trip over it, it looks really cool when they break through the paper and they run onto the field. That's the image of God here to a much greater degree. He rips through the curtains of heaven and a burst of energy, and he rides through on the wings of a cherubim. And he rides through the thick darkness with flaming fire before him as his headlights. And then comes thunder and lightning of God's anger and the earth shook with fear kindergarten, living in Germany, I remember three distinct times that thunder boomed and lightning flashed. And I still remember I was reduced to tears. One time I was the top of the hill overlooking a German farmer's field and the thunder boomed suddenly. And then I was eating dinner by myself at the house and the thunder boomed so loud and the lightning flashed that it shook the wooden shutters on this old German house. And I Cried, and I shook, I shook, I shook. That's why God made thunder. He's worse than that. He's terrible than that. And He wants you to show you that when you mess with His people, you will deal with His thunder. You will deal with His anger. You mess with my king. Now I'll come in thunder. Now I'll come in lightning. Indeed, David sings here, great salvation he brings to his king. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of this kind of God. But Paul says later, if God is for you in salvation, who can be against us in condemnation? That's what's happening here. And on top of it all, in verse 16, God creates a pathway through the waters. He, he divides the waters and then he tames the waves of death and the torrents of structure uh, of destruction that were about to overwhelm his king. Now, what is happening? Well, at one level, it's not that David drank too many Red Bulls and now he just... No, 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 no. David continues his spectacular language, To impress us with the majestic terror of God. He wants us to see the terror of God for his people. He wants to impress us with God. He wants us to see the white, hot, phosphorus glow of his power and his person. But it's more than poetic imagination. Because David is borrowing from songs and descriptions of how God delivered his people in Egypt and at Sinai. What you see here, the earthquaking and thunder and lightning and the sea divided, is exactly what happened when God delivered his people in the exodus from Egypt. King David then is seeing his own deliverance as God's Messiah from all his enemies is another supernatural act on par with God delivering his people from Egypt. Indeed, great salvation God is bringing to his messianic king. And, of course, you have to see, I know you do, how it all speaks of Christ himself. Was he not God's king nailed to the cross, surrounded by his enemies, who surrounded him like wild dogs about to jump on the wounded animal? And did not the water of death not only go up to Christ's head, but over his head? And the earth went dark at the side of it, and they quaked as our maker bowed its head. And into the dark, the son of David uttered an orphan cry of distress, breathing out his last cry, a cry of faith into the darkness. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. I cried out to the Lord in my distress. And what happened? Oh, the curtain was torn in two in the temple and the Lord came down in anger. The hands of self-willed men energized by evil had just murdered God's one and only son. They just crucified the Lord of glory and God was righteously angry. And then three days later, Jesus, as the poets say, had beaten death at death's own game. God had rebuked the cords of death and rescued his king. Do you see the experiences of David? The language that David uses goes far beyond his life to show us how God brought salvation to Jesus, his final king. And then comes the reason for the mighty deliverance. He celebrates not only the rescue, but the reasons which you follow me. And in 20 to 31, he says, because he delighted in me. I pointed that out to us earlier, but that's amazing grace that God could delight in a sinner like David. The reason that God finally delights in anybody is because his delight is not finally located in our work, but it's always in his grace and his love. Hallelujah, what a Savior who can take a poor lost sinner and set him free. And I will ever tell the story shouting glory, glory, glory. Hallelujah, Jesus ransomed me. You see, in the story of Samuel, when it says that David was a man after God's own heart, it doesn't mean that David's heart chose God. It means that God's heart chose David. He rescued me because he delighted in me for reasons only known to himself. And if the reason for his love for you is in himself, there's nothing you can do to make him stop loving you. He loved me because he delighted in me. Why? I don't know, John Newton. Let's sing Amazing Grace. What a mystery of grace. I mean, David does say it's all because of the Lord's delight. and Now he's going to give us two explanations. Uh, He says here, 21 to 30, the Lord dealt with me. Here's why he delivered me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands. He rewarded me. For I've kept the ways of the Lord and I've not wickedly departed from my God. For all his rules were before me and from his statutes, I did not turn aside. I was blameless before him and I, I kept myself from guilt. And so the Lord rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to my cleanness in his sight. And God, with the merciful, you show yourself merciful. With the blameless man, you show yourself blameless. With the purified, you deal purely. And with the crooked, you make yourself seem tortuous. You save a humble people, but your eyes are on the haughty to bring them down. For you, David's not the lamp, for you are my lamp, O Lord. And my God lightens my darkness. For by you I can run against a troop, and by my God I can leap over a wall. Now, you need to know in these verses, David is not claiming that God rescued him because he was perfect or that he had no sin. David wrote a whole chapter confessing his sin to God. Rather, these final chapters put David's life in contrast with Saul's. That's why the, the hymn opens up. You rescued me from all my enemies in the hand of Saul. The point is, in contrast to Saul, David was humble. He was merciful. He was blameless. We've seen the extent David went through to keep God's law at his own expense. As one writer puts, David is not claiming sinless perfection, nor is he making a prideful, self-righteous pronouncement, but he's humbly saying that unlike Saul, the general pattern of my life demonstrates my desire is to walk in your covenant faithfulness. You say, what about his sin? Yes, when David sinned greatly, he kept God's word and he repented sincerely and marked contrast to Saul, whose repentance was always about himself. David, John Calvin says, did fall into sin through the weakness of his flesh. But he never ceased from following after godliness, nor did he desert the service to which God had called him. And of course, what David claims in part, Christ does in full. Christ delighted in God's will. He always did the things that pleased the Father. And God indeed delivered Christ because he delighted to him and he was without sin. And now comes the end of the song. Now listen. Listen. 33 to 49, as we go to the end, David rescued him. God rescued his king and the reasons for it. And now God only rescued his king, but now God gives victory to his king. Verses 33 to 49. What I'm trying to tell you stands at two, is that this God is my refuge. He has made my way blameless. He made my feet like the feet of a deer, and he set me secure on the heights. He trains my hands for war so that the arms can bend a bow of bronze. You have given me the shield of your salvation and your gentleness made me great. You gave a wide place for my steps under me and my feet did not slip. I pursued my enemies and destroyed them. and did not turn back until they were consumed. I consumed them. I thrust them through so that they did not rise and they fell under my feet. For you equipped me with the strength for battle. You made those who rise against me sink under me. You made my enemies turn their backs to me. Those who hated me, I destroyed them. They looked, but there was none to save. They cried to the Lord, but he did not answer them. I beat them fine as the dust of the earth. I crushed them and stamped them down like the mire of the streets. You delivered me from the strife with my people. You kept me as the head of the nations. People whom I had not known served me. Foreigners came cringing to me. And as soon as they heard me, they obeyed me. Foreigners lost heart. They came trembling out of their fortresses. The Lord lives and blessed be my rock and exalted be the God of myself, the rock of my salvation, the God who gave me vengeance and brought down peoples under me, who brought me from my enemies. You exalted me above those who rose against me and you delivered me from the men of violence. So now at the end, David celebrates that God is the one who made him blameless I'm not blameless in my own strength. I'm blameless because of what God did for me. Verse 33. God is the one who equipped me to defeat all my enemies. Verse 40. And God is the one who crushed my enemies and exalted me as the head of all nations. Verse 44. He's declaring that every part of his life, every part of his being is because of God. That God is his hero. That God has exalted his conquering king. That he has rescued his king. That David is saying God is my every. And now we come to the end of David's song. And as David starts his song, another song begins. As David's song ends, another one is just beginning. We've already seen in 2 Samuel 22 that the experience of somebody greater than David are happening here. We don't look at David. We look through David to see his anointed offspring, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the great king to whom God has brought great salvation. God, Romans 1, raised Jesus from the dead and declared him to be the son of God with power. Jesus is the great King who crushed the enemies of death and hell, and now I am His forever. Because God brought rescue to His great King, He could bring great salvation to you and to me. He rescued Jesus from the grave so that He could be our King forevermore. And you know what that means? Psalm 22 is, appears again in Psalm 18. And what that means is that we can take up the prayers of Christ. We can take up the prayers of the King. We can take the victories of Christ our King because they really are ours. We are children of this promise. Great salvation He brings to His anointed. That is to Christ and His offspring forever. And that is who we are. So in Christ, all things are possible. By God, we too can leap over a wall, verse 30, because we have been raised with our King to walk in the newness of life. And God has delighted in us as much as He delights in Christ. So you want to know one of the points of Second Samuel 22 is? Believe in this King. Go and sin no more. Because He has brought salvation to Christ, our King. So we can say, the Lord is my rock and my Savior. Blessed be His name forever. Amen.